the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. If you don't already know, you can follow us on social by looking up our handle at We Get Real AF. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and comment on the show wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Today, we're talking about how technology is used to ensure geopolitical stability. And our case study is North Korea. For many of us, North Korea is a country shrouded in mystery. Analysts have described its government as a totalitarian Stalinist dictatorship with an elaborate cult of personality around its ruling Kim dynasty and a track record of severe human rights violations and has weapons of mass destruction with ambitions to grow its arsenal. So we're going to unpack what the potential threat is, misconceptions, and how technology is used to keep an eye on other nations and promote a safer world. Vanessa and I are joined by Jenny Town, Deputy Director of 38 North, which is a website on North Korean intelligence run by the Stimson Center, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank promoting international security through high-quality data and analysis. Welcome, Jenny. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really, I'm fascinated for this conversation today. But before we dive in, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and where they can find out about 38 North online? Yes. So our website, 38North, is 38north.org. It provides a wealth of policy and technical analysis about North Korea. Um, and a lot of our authors are really, you know, people who have worked with North Koreans or in North Korea that can bring greater nuance and greater understanding to what we're seeing going on in the world today. If you could maybe start out to level set us and tell us a little bit about what we do know about North Korea for sure, and what are some very common misconceptions that many of us have? Well, you know, North Korea is um, a country around the size of like Alabama. There's 25 million people there. They've gone through a third generation of this cult of personality leadership of the Kim family. So Kim Jong-un is the grandson of the founder of the country, Kim Il-sung. North Korea does not follow a military first state policy anymore. Uh, It has evolved over the past 10 years as Kim Jong-un came to power. Um, It transitioned for a little bit to a Byungjin policy, a dual development of the military, especially of building a nuclear deterrent, um, as well as the economy, and now has transitioned to more of an economy-first approach with still a very heavy military emphasis uh, simply as part of their building peace through strength sort of approach to international relations. I think a lot of what people know about North Korea, hear about North Korea or learn about North Korea, especially here in the US, is is really based on pop culture and the media. (laughs) So there tends to be this very caricature of North Korea with the, especially in the past with Kim Jong-il when he had the big bouffant hair and and people loved to sort of make him out to be the, the ultimate villain. But, you know, North Korea is not crazy. The North Korean leaders are not crazy. Um, They're very shrewd. They're very realist school of thought. 
Um, and, and they're very rational when you start to take North Korea seriously as a country with its own national interests and start to understand better how they see themselves in the world. I would also say, you know, a lot of the narrative about North Korea is shaped a lot by North Korean defectors, um, which is a, a biased sample to begin with. So, you know, the people who do well in North Korea don't defect. <laughs> um, and so the people who are defecting tends to be um, from the more hostile classes, as they would call them in North Korea, or from the border regions and from poor areas um, that either have greater access to the borders so that they can get out or greater reason to get out. Uh, so, you know, there is a multiplicity of life experience in North Korea. And yes, it has an egregious human rights record. But at the same time, you know, the life experience of, you know, someone in Pyongyang is very different from someone out in the country. Um, and if you compare it more to a third world country instead of to South Korea, um, the lives are somewhat comparable, even if there's greater human rights restrictions in that process. You brought up an interesting point, and I think you covered some of that regarding depending on where someone is regionally within the country. But let's say the spirit of the people as a whole in North Korea, how do they perceive themselves? I think the North Koreans, you know, they know they're not rich. <laughs> um, the state propaganda, you know, builds it up as we're a great and powerful country. Um, and, and this is the best place to be. For instance, the North Korean media loves to report on things like when there's civil unrest in America. <laughs> they report this in, you know, in KCNA, in the, in the Korean Central News. Um, and things that show sort of the downside of other countries. Um, but the average person, you know, knows that the country is relatively poor, knows that the country is poor, um, knows that, you know, they're under strict social conditions and that life could be better. Um, but in the past 10 years as well, you have started to see greater shifts in, and greater space open up, um, socioeconomic space for individuals um, to try and start to do better for themselves. Um, you see an opening of markets and economic activity so that if you are savvy enough to be a merchant and, and you know, um, a rise of services industries of like people waiting at bus stops and offering rides for money and, you know, things to, to start to build wealth and start to build up their um their quality of life. Um, these types of movements are happening and the values are shifting and you are starting to see things that are, you know, more kind of status symbols and, and higher uh, standard of living. Uh, whereas, you know, I think a lot of this is sort of lost on the, on the rest of the world because it's such a low bar to begin with and it's such a gradual change, but that change has been accelerating in the past 10 years. I know that there are lots of different ways to get sources of information about a society that's more closed than we are here uh, in the West, but how is technology specifically used to gain that intelligence? Um, well, in the North Korean case, there's so much of the country that no one has access to, foreigners don't have access to, and especially when it comes to their WMD programs, their weapons of mass destruction. So um, like their nuclear sites and missile-related sites, um, you know, these are not these are highly secure areas. Foreigners aren't allowed in anywhere near them. And so the international community does spend a lot of time looking at North Korea through satellite imagery. So we, we offer some satellite imagery analysis on our website as well um, to try and get a better understanding of how their WMD infrastructure is changing and what that likely means in terms of their capabilities. 
Um, so for instance, if we see uh, they've been building an experimental light water reactor over the past 10 years. And so we've watched the different phases of actual construction of that reactor and now watch for activity that would signify whether or not they've started the reactor. Because so far it's externally complete. We have no idea what the inside looks like and we have no idea what their timeline is because originally the North Koreans had said they wanted to get it started within two to three years and that was 10 years ago. But there are signatures that we can look for in the satellite imagery that would help us understand when they might actually start the reactor. So the other reactor that they have, um, the five megawatt reactor, it's a gas graphite plutonium production reactor. Um, when it's operating, there's signs, for instance, of wastewater being expunged out of the, the wastewater tubes. There's You can usually see some kind of gas or smoke coming from the generator halls and stuff to show that there's mechanisms working inside. Um, and these are the kinds of things that we would look for to see, are they actively producing plutonium? Um, and when that new reactor comes online, do they have you know, greater capacity now to also produce more plutonium? So things like that are the kinds of things that we look for in the satellite imagery that give us an idea of how North Korea is proceeding. How quick are you receiving these images? Are we talking about pretty instantaneous or are we talking about a day or two? And then if you start seeing movement, is it going to take a day or so for that reactor to do whatever it's supposed to do? Or is it pretty immediate to where it would behoove us to have them at a certain point before something could happen from that reactor? Um, so we work off of commercial satellite imagery. Um, so we are at the mercy of whenever these commercial um, satellite companies actually capture imagery um, of the areas that we're looking for. We tend to look on a daily basis at a number of sites that we're following um, to see if imagery is available. And if it is, you know, um, then we, you know, then we can procure it from there. So if there is imagery, you know, by the time that it's shot to the time that we purchase it and start to look at it, it's probably you know, somewhere in the half day to full day leg. But the problem, of course, in using commercial satellite imagery is that we don't have necessarily frequent and we don't have regular access. Would be great, yeah, if we could have live satellite footage every day and just watch what's happening to see, you know, to get a better sense of how pieces fit together. But what we're seeing is just pinpoints of time. And, you know, we can interpret those pinpoints of time but have to factor in all the caveats as well, right? Of the, you know, several days have gone by since our last image. This is only one second of one day. Um, so if we don't see something, it doesn't mean they're not doing something. It means that, you know, the North Koreans do also know when the satellites are generally going to be overhead as well. And we've seen instances where they've changed their patterns of movement in order to avoid satellites. And we've seen them change their patterns of movements in order to be seen on satellite imagery. So, you know, they certainly um, know that we're monitoring uh, and sometimes we'll use that to their advantage as well. And so we have to factor all of those concerns in when we do our analysis and try to be very cautious about how we interpret what we're seeing. When we did our, our pre-interview call, you gave an example of some sort of sports activity that was going on, a site of interest to Western satellites, and the activity changed maybe to try to disguise what was actually going on. If you could revisit that example. Yeah. So the um, North Korea has a place that they 
where they do underground nuclear testing, the Pungeri nuclear test site. Um, this is up in the mountains. It's a small area uh, where basically we're watching tunnel entrances to see if if stuff happens around these tunnel entrances um, and if it might signal that there's going to be a test coming. Um, when we first started doing this back in like 2012, 2013, um, we were able to see when um, North Korea was preparing to conduct a nuclear test. Um, you, we saw them bring equipment in, they saw them, you know, um, getting pumping water out of the tunnels to make sure that they're dry. We saw cabling and, and all the signs that you would see um, that fit the, fit the pattern of preparing for an underground nuclear test. North Korea in 2016 did two nuclear tests where we didn't see any signs. So we know that they know how to do this without being detected. In April of in late March um, of 2017, we started to see signs that looked like North Korea was preparing for a nuclear test. And so we were reporting on this movement and this activity over the course of those weeks. And, and the timing made sense. It was highly plausible because um, it was around the time of where they celebrate Kim Il-sung's birthday, the Day of the Sun. Uh, so there was a lot of expectation that North Korea would do this, a lot of anticipation that North Korea was going to conduct a nuclear test around the time of either Kim Il-sung's birthday or the um, Korean People's Army um, founding day, which is on April 25th, so somewhere in that area. Um, it didn't happen. And on um, that holiday, instead of seeing... <laughs> an underground nuclear test, what we saw was they were essentially playing volleyball. There was probably about five different games going on. And um, it was a bit funny, of course. <laughs> and it made like big headlines because, you know, it was just such an oddity. Um, and especially when people were expecting the test. And so, you know, we don't know whether they had actually planned to do a test and decided not to, whether they were just doing activity to show us they were doing activity. But it was a good reminder that we do have to be very careful of how we interpret what we're seeing, knowing that the North Koreans also know we're watching. Was anybody down there waving at the sky from the volleyball court? <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking at satellite imagery, we're looking at, you know, like 50 centimeter resolution mm -hmm. where you can see people, but they're dots, right? Like, you know, and so we had, we had actually talked about this article that we were, we were about to publish um, to the press before before they saw the pictures. And so I think in their minds, they were, you know, waiting for, you know, that, like that Top Gun image of Goose going up for the, <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's not what we saw, right? It was just literally a courtyard with some dots in a familiar enough pattern to say that that's most likely what they were doing. You know, the North Koreans too, um, over the years have done a lot to conceal the work that they do and, you know, it's one thing for us to publish of like, here are the signs that tell us this might be happening, um, but we don't get to select the audience who sees it when we post it online. <laughs> so the North Koreans over time have also um, created, you know, and built different ways to help conceal those activities. So for instance, at their Sohei satellite launching station where they've conducted um, their rocket launches to put satellites in orbit, um, we saw this happen. So now they've put um, covers over the the rail spur where you, we used to be able to see when the rail um, rail cars brought in the different stages of the rocket to be put together. 
we can't see that anymore because now it's all completely undercover. They've also built a tunnel basically so that the train can go all the way to the launch pad. And they've built covered buildings on the launch pad itself so that they can basically take it to the launch pad, pull it up onto there under concealment, um, you know, get it all checked out and assemble, put it onto the launch tower um, and the launch tower is enshrouded as well. So they can do most of this without us being able to see much of anything. Um, so we do have to look beyond just the main things that we used to look at and also look at things like, are, is there more traffic at the sites, especially around the observation centers? What other news and what other information it gives us a sense that something may happen? Um, so we, you know, it's a, it's a whole data fusion type of analysis especially the more that North Korea knows what we're looking for, we, then we have to make sure we're, we're looking at all sources of data and not just one image. We, we've heard about the nuclear arms race and history, and this almost sounds like a, a technology race, each country trying to best the other. And so I have a couple of questions. One is, is artificial intelligence being used to analyze some of this data that's being collected by satellites and to sort of see patterns? Artificial intelligence can be used in some aspects, especially just for a strict change detection. If you're looking at like factories and or like a port, if there's how many containers are there over time and, and simple things like that. But, you know, a lot of the, you know, when you're dealing with like the WMD work and everything, you know, you still need that human interpretation of, of what do these changes mean? And so, you know, there is some mix of that that goes on between just strict patterns of life and change detection and then actual interpretation of that. We've talked a lot about satellites as being sort of a primary form of technology that's used to kind of keep tabs on states like this that are more secretive. Are there other technologies that you see on the horizon that are also going to be instrumental in doing this kind of reconnaissance? One of the interesting things that's happened uh, over the past 10 years since Kim Jong-un has been in power is, and it's been incredibly useful to us, <laughs> is that North, that Kim Jong-un and North Korea now really likes to advertise what they're doing and, and to show us pictures um, and show us videos of what's happening. And so one of the technologies um, that has become popular now or useful now is really, you know, being able to detect like photoshopping of videos and and photos to see, you know, what are the things that North Korea has altered? What don't they want us to see? Um, and then what to make of that? I've thought that they do make up a lot of stuff or alter images or whatever. Whatever they want us to see, we see. Whatever we they don't want yeah. us to see, we don't. So that's really interesting. Can we dive deeper into that? Yeah. So, you know, there have been times, for instance, um, I remember a specific instance of North Korea having done um, a, a submarine launch ballistic missile test. Um, and... Uh, analysts spent a lot of time poring over the photos that North Korea published in, in North Korean state media um, because they didn't quite match up, <laughs> uh, whether it was just color corrections or, you know, and then really using the software to detect um, what had been photoshopped and trying to, you know, pull apart what those changes were in order to make something look more successful than it was. You know, the thing about North Korea, though, is that they don't want us to see. Um, if there's some part of it that they want us to see, you know, they may or may not um, alter that in order to 
make it look prettier. <laughs> and sometimes I think it is actually just to like make the optics look better. Uh, there's one photo of a missile launch that they did where um, they had launched from one of Kim Jong-un's compounds um, and it was on a, a lake and it was night and the sky was all starry. And so they had this, you know, the missile like posed against this starry backdrop. And it's like, well, is that really what the sky would look like <laughs> um, if they're lighting it in order to take the picture of the missile, you know? So, you know, there's, there's stuff like that where sometimes the Photoshopping is meaningful and sometimes it's just optics. I, I wanted to sort of switch gears a little bit because we've mentioned weapons of mass destruction a few times. And I have read that while North Korea has, you know, obviously a very active military, that their military technology is outdated. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit. I mean, how advanced is their WMD program from a technological standpoint? Um, well, it's quite extensive. Uh, North Korea has advanced its um you know, ballistic missile program actually quite far and quite fast and beyond what m many people in the international community thought they were capable of, especially under the restrictions that they have. Um, you know, so they do have a pretty diverse ballistic missile arsenals um, of short ranges, medium range, intermediate range. And then now we've seen three different systems of an ICBM as well, an intercontinental ballistic missile, which of which they've tested two of them. There's one untested one. Um, and for instance, they have uh, now five different um, Pukuksang uh, submarine launch ballistic missile systems um, of varying sizes uh, and um, and some of these newer systems, we believe, are going to replace some of the older systems that they had, like SCUDs and, and some of the really old Russian technologies. Um, so in that respect, they are advancing in their nuclear weapons. They've, they've shown considerable advancements from their first nuclear test in 2006 um, to the one that we saw in 2017. Um, you know, it went from basically one kiloton to about somewhere in the 250 kiloton range, which was the last one that they tested. But their conventional military as well, um, they don't talk about it as much, uh, but it, it is, they have also been working to update that as well. And that was the big thing that we saw in October of last year when they did um, a military parade was to show us all new conventional military equipment and hardware. So new tanks, new, um, weapon systems, uh, even new uniforms, new communications gear, um, new patterns of camouflage. It, it was pretty impressive. And for the South Koreans, pretty disturbing um, because some of the new systems that they have actually you know, exploit some of the deficiencies in South Korea's defenses as well. And so there are things on both the conventional and the strategic side that people do have to worry about. And, you know, whether or not that's that all of the system throughout the Korean military has been upgraded, which there's doubts, of course, but enough, they've shown enough for it to be a real concern. What's the role and influence, if any, of women in either the military or tech um, involvement within the military in North Korea? Do you have any insights on that? 
The role of women in general in the government and military positions is not very much. <laughs> it is a heavily like male patriarchy society. Um, there's been a lot of attention lately on a few rising women in the North Korean government, not, not on the military side, but uh, on the actual like administrative side of government. Um, and we're talking though like five or six, um, <laughs> including his sister, uh, Kim Yo-jung, who's talked about a lot um, of, of rising influence, uh, and then a few others um, who are just a, a little bit lower, not quite top elites, but really rising upper middle elites. Jenny, I'd be interested to know, just because you're such an expert on this country that, again, many of us just don't know that much about, um, what do you see as being kind of the trajectory that North Korea and the U.S. are on, say, in the next five years? Um, it's a good question. I think it's one we're all still trying to figure out, especially um, as the Biden administration really starts to get going and, and starts to get the appointments in. Um, we've seen some of the appointments already on the foreign policy side and on um, State Department's East Asia um, where there, there is a lot of experience there and a lot of knowledge there. There's also a lot of political baggage there um, in, in relations in, and in previous attempts to negotiate with the North Koreans. I, I think, you know, the, what Trump did on North Korea was useful at the time in, in opening a very different route to dealing with the North Koreans. Um, and so being able to have access to Kim Jong-un directly, there's value to that, um, especially when you're working with such a top-down system. If you want to be able to suggest big, you know, a big deal and big changes and big moves, um, these are not things that necessarily work well trying to do a bottom-up approach in negotiations. I think the, the problem with experimenting with that, though, was that when it didn't work. Uh, and so from North Korea's perspective, they're looking at it and you know they had the big summits. Um, there was a lot of anticipation. There were a lot of kind of promises made, um, but nothing really tangible came of that process. And now that North Korea is going through a sort of economic slump and especially because of the pandemic, um, I think they're going to be very reluctant to try anything big again anytime soon. And especially since on the North Korean side, um, their foreign ministry officials who were pro-negotiations um, and, and were very well experienced with dealing with the Americans, um, those people have been moved. Um, they've been dismissed, either retired or reassigned, demoted. Um, so the voices in the foreign ministry now and the personalities in the foreign ministry now do not have a good understanding of and, and, or a lot of experience dealing with Americans um, and are a harder line. So, you know, what the Biden administration is up against now is that in order to get North Korea back to the table, they're going to have to demonstrate in some way that a different outcome is possible. Um, and that's a pretty big ask, especially in this political environment of what can the U.S. do um, that they're not going to get crucified for <laughs> by the political opposition, right, um, on North Korea in order to show that um, this relationship could go in a different way in very real terms rather than just, hey, 
let's get back to negotiations. And then once they do get back to negotiations, negotiations will be even harder because you have these new personalities that we don't have a relationship with. Another technology question I have, so much of our information in the West, obviously, is gained through our access to technology, our cell phones and, you know, the internet. How is that access in North Korea? I mean, does the average North Korean person have a smart device? Uh, Do they have access to the internet? I know China limits that very much. You know, what's it like from a technology standpoint for your average North Korean citizen? Um, So right now in North Korea, there's probably about 5 million cell phone subscribers, or at least cell phone subscriptions. Some of those might be multiple per person, but they, they don't have access to the internet. There is internet access in North Korea in very limited circumstances. And so like a lot of the government offices, especially the foreign ministry would have access um, as they'll monitor, you know, the news and happenings that affect them. There's a limited amount of people, like some of the university professors will have internet access, um, but the average person does not. Um, But there is an intranet, a, a national intranet that they do have access to that works very similar, um, you know, they'll have all the different pages they can go to. There's some e-commerce through it. But otherwise, you know, information is tightly controlled in North Korea. It's only, you know, state media. There's, yeah, there's nothing other than state media. There's a few different types of state media, but certainly everything is controlled by the government and reinforces um, the the greater ideological bent of the government. Uh, and you know, the devices themselves, you know, like radios and TVs will come with fixed channels so that they can't just kind of surf around and see what they might be able to pick up. It's really just the channels that they get. And in some of the homes, they'll even have like a speaker system um, that, that just blasts out whenever there's a government announcement. There's been a lot of efforts over the past, you know, 20 years to try and get more information to the people about what's happening outside of North Korea and some and information about what's happening inside North Korea too, because, you know, from um, reporting on things that the government doesn't tell them sort of thing. Uh, but it, it's very difficult to do. Um, and it, you know, it places some danger on the people who are receiving it as well, because it is um, illegal and the government uh, will occasionally go through crackdowns and, and the, the punishments can be quite high for, for having this contraband information. What does loyalty look like um, in a country like this? You know, I, I again, just to myth bust here because I, I, we're learning, but if let's say you are on the Biden administration trying to negotiate with North Korea and Kim Jong-un, like, what is the weight that's placed on trust? How do you know that they're going to hold up their end of the bargain, especially when there's a lot of fear, you know, and this impression of them mm-hmm. doing something that could potentially hurt not just them, but the whole world. Um, can you unpack that for us a little bit and help us better understand how they perceive loyalty? And if they say they're going to do something, will they usually do it? How does that work? Maybe that's a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid question and it's actually a very common question. Um, the, the reality is we have a high mistrust of North Korea. We have no trust of North Korea. Um, but what we forget is they have no trust of us either. <laughs> so, you know, their experience of negotiating with the United States was, for instance, the agreed framework 
um, where they signed an agreement, started implementing the agreement and the U.S. There were problems on delivery. There were problems of cheating within the agreement. But instead of using those moments to renegotiate and fix those problems, um, the, there was a change of administrations in the U.S. and the Bush administration walked away unilaterally. Um, it's hard to rebuild trust after that. Uh, as we're seeing, you know, in the case of Iran and the JCPOA. Um, so I think, you know, what you have is that the North Koreans are very um, transactional. Um, you know, the whole idea of, on the U.S. side is we don't trust. That's why you build in verification mechanisms, right? So if, we, if these are the rules, this is how we measure them, and this is how we verify that these things happened. Um, you know, on the North Korean side, the same thing's going to happen, but their willingness to continue down that road will depend on whether they're seeing results, seeing the U.S. do their side of things as well. And so if the U.S. stops, um, then they'll stop also. And we saw this uh, in the inter-Korean process in 2018, 2019, where the two Koreas were very excited, had this big eager agenda, were very optimistic about the future, um, uh, signed the Panmunjom Declaration that that committed a lot of things, and especially on the South Korean side, committed a lot of things that required international cooperation in order to achieve without having the international cooperation before they signed it. <laughs> I think there was a sense of if we're excited enough about this and the North Koreans are excited enough about this, everyone will just get on board. Um, and that, that didn't happen. And so, you know, North Korea was implementing their first steps in that process. And the South Koreans were trying to implement their first steps in that process, um, but got blocked because of sanctions, because of, you know, the non-cooperation from the international community, especially from the U.S., on, on trying to move that agenda forward. Um, and so what you saw then is as the South Korean side started to lag in implementation, the North Koreans started to wane as well. Um, and then eventually reverse even some of the positive things that they had done at the beginning uh, because they weren't getting anything from it. So the how do you build trust is you have to actually show that different outcomes are possible. You have to actually show actions and show results, and you have to continue to have these um, wins along the way for both sides to build up the kind of um, political momentum and political cover to keep going. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Please tell us about your career journey and how it led you to becoming an expert on North Korea and North Korean intelligence. Um, well, I, I took a very long and windy path to get here. Um, I, you know, I studied East Asian studies and international relations in college, uh, but I lived in the Midwest. <laughs> I can tell you there's no jobs really in East Asia or international relations in Minnesota. Um, so, <laughs> so I actually started like uh, my first job out of college was running a computer consulting firm during the dot com era. <laughs> and then I ended up uh, working in advertising for a couple of years and um really learned a lot from that process, both about project management and 
and uh, public campaigns and public relations. So then when I moved out to D.C. in 2002, I didn't know anyone in D.C. D.C. is a hard market to break into. I ended up um, temping for a little bit. One of my temp assignments is like a one week mailing project <laughs> that I finished in two hours. And so I was like, now what do you want? <laughs> Just, oh, you're a cheater. Yeah. Like, guys, have you ever heard of mail merge? It, it works. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so it gave me the time to spend um, some really quality one-on-one time with the vice president of government relations at that time. And then she ended up hiring me um, creating a position for me there and hiring me by the end of the week, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I, was, I started then, you know, working a little bit on government relations in the education policy field and then also helping um, run the organization. Uh, there was five different departments that were based out of there. And I was sort of the evaluator of the managers, which they loved, of, you know, this young Asian girl coming <laughs> telling them, <laughs> evaluating their management skills. That was um, fun. <laughs> and then I eventually went to help start an international peace organization that's focused on the role of women in peace building processes, um, piece by piece. And um, we actually ended up doing a documentary about uh, following women in post-conflict zones um, and how both on formal levels and informal levels of, of the kinds of work that they were doing to help rebuild their communities and rebuild their country. And it actually premiered at the United Nations um, on the third anniversary of the signing of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, War and Peace, which was really exciting. And then, yeah, then went to Korea for a couple of years and taught English just to sort of wind down and came back to D.C. with a plan and got my master's and um, started working originally at the at the Human Rights Project, the Human Rights in North Korea Project at Freedom House, um, and then eventually uh, moved over to the U.S.-Korea Institute at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and helped build that institute. Um, and Joel Witt and I, Joel was one of our visiting fellows at that time, and then he and I started 38 North back in 2010 as a way to really highlight and create a platform for you know, informed analysis and debate about North Korea. Congratulations to you, because you know what? We talk about this, Sue and I, often, about how it's crazy that we feel, I think, women for sure, but just in general, um, at a young age to have to know what we want to do, what we want to major in when we go to college. Um, After we're done with college, then it's grad school. And, like, you never get a chance to take a breath and a beat to analyze and soak in and kind of determine what you're feeling, what, how you're feeling as an adult versus a kid right after high school. And the fact that you went back to, to Korea, figured out, man, I have a passion here. Like, I want to do more in this space. And, you know, went back, got your master's. Now you have your own business. And it, it just goes to show that you need time. You need time to, to figure it out. And you shouldn't have to be forced to figure it out right after, right out of high school. Yeah. I'm a big advocate of nonlinear paths because, you know, I just feel like the skills that I learned along the way are the reason why 38 North was successful. We, you know, we started it as a two-person project um, and have built it into something that has this global influence now. And we're still only like five or six people. Um, but, you know, being able to not only 
do the analysis and find the right people, you know, to highlight, um, but to create the platform and, and manage the brand and, and really build up all of everything that you need in order for people to take you seriously, the, the communications around it, the press briefings and the outreach, um, you know, that's not necessarily something you learn if you take a linear path, right? right? If you go the straight academic yep. route, you're not equipped to do that. And I think there, there's so much value for people having, gaining different skills and different perspectives. You know, our, our careers are going to be what, like 40 years? <laughs> you don't necessarily have to be in a rush to get to that point, like right away. Exactly. And, you know, I would say pretty much every single guest that we've had on this podcast has said an iteration of that same thing, which is you may think that you have it all figured out when you're 21 and you have that college degree in your hand. But the reality is all their paths have wound and meandered and taken different twists and turns. And to your point, Jenny, that trains different aspects of their personality, their skill sets, their brains, and makes them um, just better rounded for for wherever they are in their career journey. So I love that um, that you said that because I think it's it's a universal truth that young women need to hear more when they're in college. Like, don't have it all figured out at the beginning. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, and especially as a 20-year-old, you don't even know what's possible. <laughs> like, there's things that I do now that I didn't even know were possible and, you know, in the world that I exist today. And and the reality is too, is that my field, the majority of jobs that exist now didn't exist 10 years ago. Great point. And I think Mm -hmm. you see that more and more technology is changing everything and the way that we do business, the way we think about business, that, you know, what we think is going to happen or what we think we're training for now is going to be obsolete in like five Mm -hmm. years. And skills are going to be needed. So, you know, I think people, especially the young people these days really need to take that pressure off of themselves to say that if I'm not here at a certain time, I'm behind schedule. Yes. Throw the schedule off the window. 100%. I've had to do that. (laughs) I was one of those people. Uh I will be completely vulnerable in saying that. I also feel it's like redefining success. And I think as a young person, and maybe it's the way our culture is, you know, that like, oh, you get a good paying job and, you know, money starts being a big factor, but that does not equal um, happiness and success. You know, it's redefining success and finding what you truly love and truly have a passion for and finding that you're good at certain things that surprise you. And then the money will eventually come because you, you don't feel like you're working. I think this is a great segue into our lightning round. Yeah. Are you up for it, Jenny? Sure. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll start us off. What are three pieces of advice you would give your younger self? Just master a second language as early as you can and, you know, or as many languages as you can. One thing I would, you know, reiterate to myself is, is really get comfortable being uncomfortable and you know in order to adapt in order to to keep growing you know if you don't put yourself out there there's so many opportunities that you miss where sometimes you just have to suck it up and go for it and if you fail you fail Um, but if you don't try like there's so many things that you'll regret later Um, and I think the third thing stay blonde longer (laughs) 
stuff <laughs> blonde hair. It was really fun. It just took a lot of like, blondes have more fun. <laughs> That's an easy thing you can go back to any time in your life. <laughs> I love, love, love uh, that all of them yes. were great, but that second piece of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, that is huge. Take risks. Yeah. That is huge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Nice segue again from the last uh, point that we were talking about. How do you define success, Jenny? I define success as something, you know, doing something that's meaningful to me. And that's something that I've I've really learned in my career. Like, you know, in advertising, it's it's a lucrative business, but my clients were biscuits and auto glass. (laughs) So I was spending, you know, 90 hours a week looking at bread baskets and, and, uh, and yeah, and like auto glass companies and what are campaigns to get people to change their windshields. It just wasn't meaningful at all. And so, you know, there was a lot of trade-offs along the way in order to be able to do something that was, that brought me greater meaning and that was closer to, you know, the who I wanted to be. Um, And so, I think, yeah, there. What resources do you wish existed for women in your field or women in technology in general that don't currently exist? Better support networks. Uh, I think there is a big movement now in, especially in national security and, and nuclear issues, especially to be more inclusive of women and shame the mantles, like all the conferences where it's only old men that speak. I think in the East Asia field, that's even harder to break into uh, because you're dealing not only with, you know, the, the U.S. perception of old white haired men no more, <laughs> um, but old Korean men no more, too. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so it's hard, you know, it's hard to to build that reputation for people to take you seriously so that, you know, you're on par with the, the seniority around you. Um, and so, you know, greater support and, and greater encouragement of that throughout the process. Like right now, there's lists that go around of, you know, the, the women who know and the to try and and introduce, you know, show people that here's all these women experts in these different fields that you should be including as well. Um, But obviously, the more specialized the field, the harder that list becomes. Definitely. We hear that often. And I think we're going to coin the um, acronym OWM, old white men, from (laughs) here on out. Like, what myth about women in STEM or your field would you like to dispel? Well, one, that there aren't any. <laughs> I hear this a lot. There just aren't any women out there that do this kind of stuff. And, and there are. Um, and that you you don't have to have white hair to know things. I think that that's a great point. You, you hear, oh, we need more women in STEM. And of course, we need more women in STEM. But there are a lot of amazing women we just need to hear more from <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. in these professions. So I think you make a great point there. Um, how have you surprised yourself in your career journey? Have you discovered a strength that you had or something about yourself that you just didn't realize you had at the beginning? Well, I never expected I would do so much media as what I do and so much public speaking and stuff. Um, I I think especially early in my career on the Korea policy side, I was very much behind the scenes and very much running stuff um, and writing stuff, but not like in front of the camera. And so it really took a lot of encouragement from some of my mentors, um, to get me in front of the camera and to really, again, get comfortable being uncomfortable. But it's definitely something you have to just keep doing in order to get better at. It doesn't, 
you know, just magically one day wake up and are good at it. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, what's a funny mistake you made when you were starting out in your journey, your career journey, and the story behind it? Like at the beginning of my career, like right out of college? Sure, just anything that jumps out at you. Oh, man. I wasn't ready for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, just a random story. Um, There was one time uh, early when I was at the U.S. Korea Institute, um, we had done a study trip to Myanmar. It was me. It was a six person delegation. I'm the only woman on the delegation before Myanmar opened up. And so we were going there as a study trip to see what was happening with the new constitution. Were they really going to transition to democracy? And then looking more closely at um, Myanmar's relations with South Korea. I was going to Myanmar for a week and then Seoul for a week. In Myanmar, it was, you know, tropical. In Seoul, it was, you know, there was about a foot of snow on the ground. So I brought two different suitcases, <laughs> one for summer clothes and one for winter clothes, um, two big suitcases. And the rest of my colleagues brought a carry-on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to know what you did, girl. <laughs> you got to be prepared. Me too, always. But we, Just in case. Exactly, right? <laughs> like, you know, the, the winter ones, you have to have the coats and the boots, but you, you can't, you, you know, you just got to lug them around. So the problem was, though, is that we basically, in Myanmar, changed hotels every day. And so we're constantly unpacking and repacking that we had rented a bus and <laughs> And so, you know, here's like these guys basically all the time griping that they have to help me with my luggage and I'm just constantly packing and repacking and reloading it back onto the bus (laughs) where they just have like these little (laughs) carry-ons. You know, it always stumps me on the shoes, right? I'll like get all of my clothes in there. I'm like, I did it. One bag. And I'm like, crap, my shoes. All righty. Last one. Blank like a girl. Fill in the blank. I would say persist like a girl. Mm, like there's so much. Everyone's always telling us you can't do that. And you know what? You can. Great note to end on. And um, I just want to let people know that 38 North is a website where you can read the latest articles and publications and intelligence on what's going on in North Korea, if this is a topic that you want to continue to research. So um, Jenny, thank you so much. I've learned a lot today. You're so articulate. You're a great public speaker. Obviously, all the media practice has, has done right <laughs> by you. Um, and I really appreciate your time and continue to, to help all of us um, learn more and be better informed about what's going on in the world, both in the terms of, of technology and geopolitical relations. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Jenny. Uh, keeping an open mind and open heart always, right? Th- thanks for having me here. It was really a pleasure and it's always great to talk about these issues. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. 
We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. And we want to give a special thanks to Florence Lumsden, our associate producer for the We Get Real AF podcast. You can find Flo on LinkedIn at Florence Lumsden, L-U-M-S-D-E-N, or at her website, danceandflowproductions.com. That's D-A-N-C-I-N-F-L-O Productions. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women. 